Welcome to the Fellowship of Christlike Growers podcast. We believe that agriculture is stronger when we help and support each other through the challenges and decisions we face as farmers. Our farmer sharing calls provide an opportunity to share and learn from each other's knowledge and experiences regarding the agronomy issues that matter most to our farms. Guys, uh, Andy is uh, someone that we've been working with for several years now, and uh, we're very blessed and fortunate to have him on board. And last week, like I said, we were in Iowa. We did a growers meeting last week there. Uh, a lot of the that are on board tonight were there at the conference uh, with Agronomy RX, and we're very thankful for uh, what they're doing there in Iowa, uh, Larry and Didi Ekoff, the owners, and then Jeremy Swanson and uh, Andrew um, Ken, they are our um, agronomists there at Agronomy RX in Iowa, and they've been working with both uh, the CarbonWorks products and Physigo products now for uh, several years, and so in an effort to share and continue to share on our farmer sharing calls, I asked Andy to come on tonight and actually do part of his uh, presentation that he did in Iowa last week. And so I think you'll find this very interesting about the biologicals. And then, as I said earlier, and I, I was, you know, half-hearted, but I was very serious in that uh, Jason Deblin is an incredible uh, asset to us and the tools that he brings and the things he's doing in in-farm, on-farm trials with biostimulants, biologicals with our traditional inputs and uh, on corn and soybeans in Missouri. And uh, we're very thankful for what Jason's doing. And so, Andy, with that, let's roll. And then uh, this will be a wide open call as long as you want it to go, as long as you can stay. Uh, open up yeah. the subjects to anything you want to talk about. So it's for you farmers to share. So thanks, Andy. Perfect. Thanks, George and Jason. And, you know, appreciate appreciate not only the chance to do this, but, you know, as always, uh, just want to take two seconds real quick and uh, give praise to uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for putting us all together and allowing us to do this. So uh, quick thanks to that. But um, I see a lot of familiar faces, so I'll kind of jump right in. But uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Andy Dardini, and George kind of mentioned I I started a company called Physigro, and uh, basically what we're trying to do is um, address all of these issues that we are kind of facing collectively as a group. We're trying to work on synthetic reduction in synthetics, trying to help improve yields, trying to do some nutrient density solutions as far as getting the nutrients back in the crops. And then the thing that I think makes us different that nobody's really talking about is we're trying to also address a lot of these environmental toxins that are happening and we're doing it, you know, via a combination of uh, biologicals and chemical approaches and using some physics concepts to kind of back that up. So I know some of the people that we talked to earlier kind of um, had specific interests in the RO study, and that's going to be kind of the, the point of emphasis tonight is talking about the differences that we've seen in RO water versus the activated water and some solutions that folks are using to address that because it is one of the most variable things that we're seeing out on the farm as far as quality is concerned. Um, but beyond that, like, like George mentioned, you know, this is an open dialogue. This is us, 
you know, and me sharing information. So if you have things that are kind of coming to mind, um, please feel free to jump in and come and go as you, as you please. But, but thanks for taking time to, to come out and listen. So, um, here's the background. This is why we're doing what we're doing. Okay. Um, uh, this is a look at vitamin C content in three crops, green cabbage, potatoes, and onions over the last 50 ish years. And so every year, what we're seeing is this kind of slow decline in the amount of vitamin C that actually makes it into the crop, the fruit crop, the vegetable crop, whatever it may be. Okay, so just trend line going down. Um, in addition to this, you know, we're seeing less of a response on some of the fertility that we're putting in. So this is just one example. I'm not picking on anhydrous, but, you know, in 1970, when we first, first started using it, you know, you could put a pound of anhydrous out and get a 39, almost 40 bushel response in your yield. And that number has kind of drastically gone down as well. We're down, you know, 15-ish by 2000, you know, and today that number is like seven and a half. Um, so the return on investment for anhydrous is not what it was. And we'll get to why that is, but, you know, we're seeing these trends, okay? This is our consumption. So this is actually how much we're, we're putting down pound for pound to try and achieve the crop. And the amount that we're putting out into the field has increased almost exponentially, but yet we're getting less of a return. Okay. And then this was a little excerpt, you know, and I apologize. I know I'm moving through this part quick, but um, just to give you the background, you know, there's starting to be some, you know, some health studies being done on the environmental toxins that are taking place. And this has kind of been the underlying thing that we're seeing field to field and state to state as we're doing soil tests and managing crop inputs is that there's a lot of crap and uh, particularly heavy metals and some things, um, you know, with, uh, you know, isotopes that are linked to herbicides and, um, you know, the impacts that 5G and cell towers are having on the way that plants can metabolize things. All of that is happening. Um, and this is just an excerpt from, you know, an article in the National Library of Medicine that highlights that they're seeing excessive accumulation of these things causing um, you know, toxic problems with soil microbiological respiration. And um, as we know, and I'll show you, that that's a really important thing to have happen in order for the plant to be healthy, the plant to have healthy crops, and then ultimately for us as people to be healthy, you know, we're getting quality food. So this is a I'll skim over this, but I put this in in Iowa just to showcase that, you know, one little, you know, toxicity in any one component of these things, you know, gets absorbed in the plant and it begins to degrade the process that the plant tries to uh, overcome naturally. So if it gets too much uh, ambient aluminum, let's say, that can affect uh, protein production, the manufacturing process that is linked to building of lipids and building of enzymes the plant needs. And that's where it stops. So it literally says, nope, I've just received a message internally, chemically. It says, I can't carry on this process. This enzyme is not going to get made. And it's, it's over. So we're seeing that in, you know, the kind of the compounding effect to, you know, the plant response to this by the decreasing numbers of nutrient, nutrient markers inside the food. So what's the solution? You know, we're, we're using biological and chemical, naturally, chemically, you know, alternative products to try and address this. Um, but I want to give you hope because, um, you know, <laughs> in, in 
First Corinthians, it tells us the three most important things in life, George, what are they? Faith, hope, and love. So we have faith. You know, we love each other and we love sharing. So we try to give you a little hope. Um, soil microbes are there and they're actually far more resilient than what we are being led to believe, you know, from the people in the industry and what they're telling us in the media. Um, they use dormancy to kind of compensate for the crap that's going on in the environment. So you can you can use that to your advantage to try and help restore that population and get them back to the levels that they need to be at by providing them with a good environment, a good source of energy, and conducive situation for them to grow. And that's to the tune of like 60% of our biomass. So we've depleted a ton, and what we have left is inactive. Um, and that's why we're seeing what we're seeing on the response with the nutrition and and, you know, the response to some of the fertility. Uh, so I've talked about this, you know, it's, it's why we're doing what we're doing. Okay. Uh, let me give you a little background on some of the stuff that's in it. So in all of, in all of the products that, that we make, that I make, Physigrow, that I formulate, I'm, I'm selecting first and foremost species that are parallel usage type species. They are, they're species that are naturally occurring in our gut and naturally would work and serve a purpose in the soil. So I, I got three examples. Okay. First one, Bacillus subtilis. For us, if we if we ate it, it's in our gut, which it is, it's going to process lipids. It's for gut health and in plants, it's a really good cellulose degrader. Okay. This lactobacillus plantarum, it's it's used in people, you know, to help prevent eczema and allergies. And in plants has been linked to shoot and germination growth. Germination and shoot growth, whatever order you would like. And then this streptococcus species is a, a lactic acid producer. It's the same one that they use uh, to manufacture cheeses and things. But in plants, that helps produce the enzyme urease, which is what the plant uses to convert urea to ammonial nitrogens and forms that it can recognize. So my point in showing this is, you know, if you're in, if, if we are intentional about what we're trying to do and help to restore the population of specific okay. things. It can be both beneficial to the plants and to the people because by default, we're getting some of these things back in our own system that we are lacking. Right? 98% of all microbes in our gut are also located in the soil. They occur naturally in both places. So that was a pretty overwhelming statistic for me to say, you know what, if, if, if we see what's going on in the ground and what's happening, happening environmentally, well, that's painting a pretty clear picture to me about what's happening in our gut with some of the problems that we've now seen kind of become prevalent. And, you know, really, in my opinion, the root of this starts with, you know, all that we're doing. And this is not my fault. This is, this isn't meant to be kind of an encouraging thing that, you know, we are, we're actively trying to promote and do the things that we know are beneficial and right. You know, um, just to give you some feedback ratio, human cells to bacterial cells in your gut. You didn't know this one to 10. So for every one skin cell you have, you have 10 microbiological bacterial population growth pustules that are forming inside your gut. So it's one, to it's crazy how many species and how much of the, the microbial growth actually happens in, inside our gut and our intestinal tract. Okay. And uh, even Mayo has admitted that the healthiest 7% of the people that they see have the most diverse gut microbiome. So they have the most different number of species. 
Okay, so these guys are important. But it's not just as simple as throwing microbes out and expecting them to work. And that's why we're all here. So it's, it's what do you do, you know, in addition to this information to make your farm and your garden and your ultimately your gut health more successful. Um, I'm going to skip over the medical stuff unless you guys want to see it, but there's some things that the microbes do for us. Okay. Microbes are, are important in a few things. They produce enzymes. Okay. That, that lead to vitamin production in the plants. They are a catalyst to redox reactions, which have to happen for some of these minerals that we need to be reduced or oxidized. The plant can absorb it. Okay. They produce exudates with exudates that chelate other minerals in the soil and, and hold. That's what attributes to our water holding capacity and airflow and things like that. And these guys respirate, produce the CO2 that the plants breathe. So the more that they're doing their thing, the more CO2 they're producing at, at a low level and providing that to the plant so the plant can respirate and produce high-quality sugars, okay? Uh, this is what it actually has to happen. And I made the graphic myself, so the guys, I'm not an art major. It looks ugly. Jason did it, or whoever else you want to blame. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It wasn't me. Uh, but this is what has to happen for a plant to make a protein. And, and I think this is kind of important to show because – we just assume that when we go eat a carrot, that it's always going to, it is what it is. We have the protein, it's there. But we take for granted the fact that in order for that protein to be made, you know, we got to, we got to have the minerals there. There has to be energy and sugar in place for the microbes to do the conversion. And then once it's converted, it has to form an amino group, form an amino acid, and then many amino acids form that protein. So if you're missing any part of this chain, you don't get a protein. And that's why the crops are becoming deficient in some of some of these important factors you know the vitamins and minerals protein content the whole nine so and, yes sir while we're there real quick yes this is why cetane is so valuable with yes. nitrogen because we're bringing what he has there in orange the energy and the sugars we've got the energy and the oxygen in the cetane that is what is enhancing the biological conversion. Because right. everyone wants to say, well, they have humics, and they do, they have humics, but we're just using a one and a half percent humic as a carrier, a truck, to bring the energy and oxygen. We have the ultra low pH, a pH of two in cetane, and a very positive 250 to 300 molecular oxygen. But those Two things are what differentiate cetane from any other nitrogen stabilizer. It's why it's an incredible nitrogen enhancer is, yes, the carbon will hold the nitrogen and other forms of carbon would hold the nitrogen, but they don't have the energy and oxygen that completes the equation. And this is right. exactly what happens in leguminous plants and soybeans is that it's dependent upon how healthy the soil is to get a better conversion of that atmospheric nitrogen and get it into nitrite and nitrate plant available. This is why these energy and sugars that Andy's talking about and the oxygen, because these are aerobic bacteria, Correct. these are the guys that do the work. So 50% of that urea 
you know, in a UAN 32 or UAN 28, a liquid, 50% of that's still urea that has to be converted. 25% of it's nitrate and 25% ammonium. Those both can be plant available, but that 50% is totally dependent on how well the soil biology can convert it. That's right. And you you hit some important things. I'm going to clarify some misconceptions on energy sources here in a minute because we've we've heard some varying things and I've heard people ask, you know, well, you know, can I can I help energize the microbes that I already have in my soil? Yes, but it needs to be done with intention and specifically just like what we eat needs to be done with intention and specifically in unless you're like me and you just enjoy pizza. But I probably shouldn't say it's being recorded and I, I don't want it to so for all of you that hear this later, I'm not advocating that pizza is in any way, shape, or form good for you. But um, if any reps from Little Caesars are available, I'm I'm open for endorsement deals. So I'll just leave that. <laughs> but uh, I I share this. Okay, this is just a tidbit of information. Um, I look. This is just vitamin C deficiency, like George mentioned. So if we take that equation out and we assume that those things, the the microbes don't have the energy. And the, the, the things don't get made, you know, vitamin C levels are low. This is just a short abbreviated list of things that I have personally seen in the field linked to plants with low vitamin C. So you test it, low vitamin C, aphid pressure, leaf hopper pressure, diseases, downy mildew, leaf blight, powdery mildew, leaf rust, all these things. So the, the, the reason this is here is because to our point, you know, the healthier that you can keep the plant in the soil, the less likely it is to develop pressures with insect and disease because those don't want to be there by default. They, they only want to go after, like they're attracted to the weaker species, the weaker plants. So you can keep, you can kind of manage this somewhat. It's not flawless, but you know, you can manage disease by creating a healthier situation in your soil, in your plant. Okay. Uh, George, George mentioned this. This is the, re this is what has to happen with redox in order for, you know, the sugars to be broken down. Okay. So you have to have oxygen in abundance for the microbes to take that sugar and break it down into water and carbon dioxide. So how we do that is really important because a lot of us have different tillage practices, different climate conditions, you know, different things, you know, that we're providing. So the, the suggestion that I like to make with feeding the microbes, okay is to kind of diversify what you're doing. So I've got a product called MicroBoost. George has, you know, that Replenish and Cetane, which does a really good job of providing carbons. The MicroBoost has five different types of sugars, two carbohydrates, and it's made with the activated water, which is part of what we're going to get to over the RO. Okay. And that is all done on purpose so that we can achieve this oxygen and sugar. Because what we've seen is that if it, if it is an anaerobic type situation, the biology shuts down. So if you, can, if you can have both, if you can have sugars that you're providing organically, naturally, in the right forms, not one form, it's got to be multiple forms because the species don't like to all eat the same thing. So if, if you're providing them the same thing, only certain families are going to work and you miss out on the other half of that conversion. Okay. But if you can do that intentionally with oxygen and sugars together, you have higher results. So the, the bombshell that I'm going to drop, despite what you know may have been said, you know, in other articles or other other avenues, is that 
against popular belief, not all carbon sources are the same. So, you know, humix, good, fulvix, good, you know, sugar, good, but it's not, it's not better or best. So if you can find products like, like George's Replenish or like the MicroBoost that have both high oxygen, multiple sources of energy via different forms of sugars or different forms of carbon, and it's high energy, high oxygen, and a relatively low pH, it is much more absorbable and much more usable by the biology in the soil to do the work that we're needing it to do to get to that vitamin conversion. So I want to clarify that because I get asked that quite a bit too, you know, I'm using, I'm using fulvic. Do I need to include, you know, molasses? Yes. Well, I'm using molasses. Do I need to include, you know, sucrose or fructose or whatever? Yes. Yeah. I like pizza. George likes chicken. Jason likes steak. You know, all of us have different appetites and the microbial community does as well. And so if you're only targeting certain species, you're only going to reap the benefits of those that are you know, work. God, God was kind of intentional by making it diversified. And we have all these different, you know, crops working together. And that was kind of the intent was that there's, there's more than one source of food and there's more than one source of epistasis with communities that are overlapping, provide energy and sugars. So I throw this out. Okay. Um, this is one of the physics concepts that I kind of incorporate in the, the process. It's called Bernoulli's principle. Um, this is what happens when, you know, a jet takes off, you get an area of high pressure under the wing and low pressure above. Um, or when you're passing a truck, you know, and you have oncoming traffic, you kind of feel temporarily sucked in before getting pushed away. There's that, that void, you have high pressure and low pressure together. And by default, what happens is you get movement in ambient areas around a targeted zone. So how does this work in all of our plant talks? Uh, what it what it does actually is by increasing the energy in the zone, in the root zone and directly around the plant, you create airflow and you can therefore get the air and the carbon dioxide that is already around in a different pressure situation and work its way into the plant using this versus just directly applying it. So so it's like a compounded effect. You know, you 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 get the biology working and you're introducing sugars and energy above the plant as a foliar now we've got we've got two different avenues of energy being provided to the plant and we're getting we're getting turbines going in both locations and that's going to increase everything happening between there to force carbon dioxide force oxygen force sugars force all the things that we need back into the plant to expedite those processes so something to consider okay it's also the same principle that it would happen if you stuck your thumb over the garden hose and get the the real high pressure jet stream that's also very effective at you know disciplining your brothers or children or anybody else that's annoying you you get high pressure in a small small spot so for that all right so one of the things that i, I get asked a lot and we've been talking a lot about is ro water um i did this study with ro water and our activated First Nova water, and then I'm going to show you some data on what we did to to use carbon water replenish to to add even more oxygen to this. Uh, the general consensus is this: okay, RO water is clean, and from a health standpoint or from a medical standpoint, it it's clean and it is not introducing any more contaminants into your body that might naturally happen from 
you know, well water or city water, things like that. So from a cleanliness standpoint, RO water serves that purpose. However, what we've found in the fields and what we're seeing in this data is that it is not at the right resonant frequency to be absorbed correctly by the plant. So in Iowa, when I did this live, and if you, if you want to see it, you know, we can send you the video or I can talk you through it. But what I did to demonstrate this was I took a tuning fork and a ping pong ball and I set them side by side and I put a tuning fork that had the same resonant frequency, you know, a few inches away from this setup and hit it. And what would happen when I hit it was that frequency would resonate to the other tuning fork and vibrate and move the ping pong ball. When we switched the fork with a different fork of another frequency and hit that fork, there was no movement. So what we were trying to demonstrate was that if, if it is at a different resonant frequency, if it vibrates differently, okay, it doesn't create resonance and it doesn't absorb into the plant. So we're able to see absorption happening faster into the tissue when it's activated naturally. And this is without electricity. This is without peroxide. This is without oxygenation. This is just moving the water through an activation tube that has mineral ores and an algorithm stamped on the outside. So it's like it's like rumble strips on the inside of the tube. And as the water passes over those strips, it vibrates and creates the frequency that we want. And so here are the results. Um, we did a single-strain study. I did a single-strain study on Bacillus subtilis, which is one of those that we talked about, human probiotic, soil probiotic. I grew them, cultured them out for 48 hours inside Petri dishes. Um, and after 48 hours, this, this is in CFUs per milliliter. So this is a colony count um, at 10 to the minus ninth. So if, after 48 hours, there were 18 billion colonies forming inside the milliliter of RO water. Um, after 48 hours um, with the activated water, that rate was at 26. So the count was at 26. It was about a 44% increase in Bacillus subtilis growth just using activated water over the RO water. So the, the inoculation rate was the same. The feeding protocol was the same. The time and temperature was the same. The only difference was the media of the water. Um, and, it, and this is true. This is true with plants, what we've seen in dry matter increases. Um, Jason, I think, can speak to, you know, later on what he noticed using, um, you know, some of George's products in this water to reduce starter, reduce starter and reduce herbicide uses, because since this is absorbing so much better and it's natural, you don't need the levels of herbicide and fungicide and starter that you would typically because you don't, you don't have to have as much to absorb and get the same effect. So that's one of the ways that we're trying to reduce the synthetics is to make what we do have more efficient. Um, on the probiotic, so one strain is good. I wanted to check it against a multi-strain approach to see if this was something that was consistent from species to species. So this is a probiotic blend that I made, had four probiotic species in it. Um, I let it culture out to 84 hours because 84 hours is typically the point at which we start to see the law of diminishing returns happen. So this is called carry capacity. So there's there comes a point when you can't fit any more microbial growth inside the space. Um, and we hit that at 84 hours with the activated water. Um, so RO was about 121 billion colonies in the activated water 
152. That was about a 26% increase there, uh, which averaged out to be 35% across all of our trials um, biologically growing in the petri dishes. So here's this is a picture of what that looks like. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry if it's small on the screen, you guys. I can I can show you just try to put some pictures up for for reference, but you can see the difference in the amount of little pustules and pockets forming on the medium, you know, on this plate versus this plate. This one looks, you know, the activated water looks more even and spread out like polka dots. This one you've got some small clusters forming, but the numbers are are definitely different, noticeably different. Then we did the same thing with plants. So we did a trial with basil and a trial with spinach. And I, I put some pictures of the basil up here. You can see the difference in the germination rate just from the eye looking at it between what was grown with the RO water on the left and what was grown with the activated water on the right. Um, and this also matched what we saw earlier in the year with our field trials where we cut herbicide and fertility rates using the activated water in comparison to what we would have had with traditional water or the RO water. So this is what the data looked like on the germ rate. Um, I did this with well, too. You didn't see the picture of the well, but well water and RO water were both kind of mid-80s on the germination rate, 86 and 83%. And we got a 98% germination rate um, across all the seedlings, spinach and basil, when we used the person over activated water. And then there was about a half a centimeter height increase uh, where that water was in the in the six weeks that we had the trial going. So it was about a 12% increase in germ rate, 25% increase in height over that six weeks. Uh, this is what the system looks like. For those of you that have never seen it, this is a picture from our facility in Webster City. Um, this is also what the system looks like in Fort Wayne um, and in our other mini plants that are around the Midwest country, but, you know, we're treating it, we're getting the contaminants out. This is the activation tube that we're using. So the water goes through this and then we actually run it through the RO and then it goes back through two more of these activation tubes before it goes out and into the tanks as activated water. Um, and I wish I could show you some pictures of what that looks like um, in the field farmers that have used this, you know, there's a, there's a distinctive color change. Um, and there's zero algae growth when it's left outside in poly tanks, as we've kind of figured out you know, through some people in Iowa. Um, coupled with this, George talked about, you know, adding oxygen via the replenish. And so I'm going to show you some data. I tested that too. Um, this is another trial that we did just looking at uh, the, the growth across the water. So this was a 12 hour incremental study that we tested biological growth every 12 hours to see what the levels would look like. So again, same, same mixture, same inoculation rate, same feed. The only difference was the water. Um, and here we looked at the well, well water, city water, and the activated water, because this is typically what people in their gardens or in the field are going to have access to. And so you could see the difference. Okay. After 36 hours, you know, the city and the well water were about half of what the activated water was producing as a growth media in that same time frame. So you could see it kind of plateaus off. Like I saying, we started to get to that carry capacity where we couldn't fit any more in. And uh, the well and the city water just never caught up. Um, and I like to point this out too, if you guys notice, 
there in the last trial, the last count, the well water actually beat the city water. And someone asked me once why that was. And said, well, this is why this is what happens when the treatment from the treatment plant finally catches up with what's happening. You know, there's, there's, that's the effect that the chlorine and the fluoride are having on some of the biological growth too. So to George's point, when we put replenish with it, George's product replenish, which is a carbon energy source that has a high oxygen rate and low pH, what does that do? So if you look, I know it's I know it's tough, but the replenish trials are the trials that are kind of the lighter color. So you have the blue and the lighter blue. So this is the uh, well water, and then the lighter blue would be the well with replenish, and then red would be the city, and the lighter red would be the city with replenish, and then the green was the person over activated, lighter green was person over with replenish. So we saw even more than what we were seeing with the Personova, which the activated water did really well, when we coupled it again with high energy and high oxygen, we got about a 10% growth in each phase of this process, just giving it some more energy and some more oxygen to go out in the field and work. Um, and George can attest to that too in the field trials, you know, where people have run Physigro products um, in furrow or as a foliar when they couple it with good sugars, like a micro boost and um, good carbon source that has energy like a replenish or a cetane, the results were, were very positive and very uh, reassuring and had positive ROI across the board for the farmers. So it's healthier, it's more effective, and it's returning some of your investment back year one, which in my book are all check, check, and check from the, the folks that we talk to kind of on a daily basis. So putting this in to kind of, you know, showcase some of what we've seen. Uh, I just want to talk on this real quick. Um, biologicals in general, some of them get a bad rap because, you know, companies, other companies aren't taking the quality control and the the intention of doing what we're doing to the level that we're doing it. They're just culturing something out, putting it in a jug and giving it to you and telling you to work. You know, and that's not reality. It's still a living organism and it needs to be paired with you know, good nutrition. That's why from a, a biochemical standpoint, you know, I work really hard to try and pair the the biologicals that we have in our products with good energy and good oxygen so that it is successful when it gets to the field. Um, things you can do to help um, avoiding UV degradation. So keeping the products inside, you know, keeping it at a consistent temperature so you don't have spikes in growth or spikes in decay, you know, by moving it in and out constantly. Um, shouldn't freeze, shouldn't, shouldn't have the lid open. I know that seems like common sense, but you got sugars and you leave it outside with the lid open. You're going to get a science experiment. It's probably not the one that you're looking for, but it does happen. Okay. And then again, we try to avoid tank mixing this for a long period of time. You know, we know that the intent is to try and help you reduce usage and reduce some of your herbicide passes. But when these things are together in that same mixture for long periods of time, it's not good for anybody. You know, those guys naturally want to break down the chemicals that you're spraying and the chemicals naturally are trying to kill the biologicals that you have in there. So it's it's a lose-lose. So the shorter that that duration is, the better the odds of success are for the products outside in the field. Okay. Here's some field results. I want to share you this so that you, you know, can see that there's some some quantification to what 
I'm saying, what we're saying, and why we're all on this call to share. Because the more that we can share and the more that we can learn from each other, you know, the better the success rate is for the things that we're going to see down the road. We're, we're trying to feed everybody. We're trying to have healthier crops. We're doing it for us. We're doing it for our kids. And so I feel like we, you know, we owe it to each other to do things right, do things with intention and to share freely. Um, you know, I'm not talking about proprietary secrets, but, you know, information like this that could help somebody else could be the difference between a crop or a crop failure, especially in dry years like what we've seen. So here's some pictures. This is raspberries on the left treated and on the right untreated uh, and some corn untreated and corn treated on the right with Physigo products. These both had biogreen foliar uh, with microboost with, with my multi-faceted sugar products that you could get energy with the biologicals. Um, this came from Wisconsin. Troy's on the line. I don't know if you want to, um, you know, pipe in, but we pulled these up in Green Bay. These were treated uh, with biogreen. And the thing that we noticed here was not only was there a visual difference in the size, but we saw the weight difference, the test weight difference. Why is that? Because we opened back up some of those biological pathways and allowed the plant to naturally fill the proteins, build the proteins, and reduce the stress like it wanted to. So we're removing some of the toxicities and inhibitions from the plant. Uh, this is a trial from Iowa and corn where they sprayed. We got about a 15 bushel increase on corn and about a, I think it's seven. My, my screen is covering it up. There it is. Seven bushel increase on the beans as a trial there. Uh, and then Uh, I'm not going to, if you guys have specific questions on products, um, you can talk to me. I don't want to take up time talking about this. You know, this isn't meant to be a sales pitch. This is just informational, but, um, I also wanted to share with you some of the SAP tests that we got, um, for those of you not familiar with a SAP test, what it is, um, this is like a blood test for the plant. So it's taking a sample of an old leaf and a new leaf and giving you a visual demonstration of what is happening to each of these nutrients over the course of the season with the plant. Um, so I would like to point out a couple things that we're seeing um, to, to validate the points that we're trying to make. Okay. This is without our products. This is conventional products. Okay. Noticed a couple things. The EC, which is the electrical conductivity, went up in the areas where they were not treated. Okay. The sugar level, and this is not, I'm not talking about sugar in the, the fruit. I'm not talking about sugar in the root, the vegetable, the crop. I'm talking about sugar in the leaf. So the sugars there tell us how active photosynthetic activity is, and that is a positive sign. We want those sugars in the leaf and in the sap to be up. Okay, so they were low here. Uh, nitrate was low. Phosphorus went down. Okay, we lost phosphorus. And then iodine was terrible when in the tank. So kind of like us, plants can use the iodine to kind of fight off some of these toxins if it's in the right form. And we saw that those levels were pretty rough in aluminum levels. Obviously we're, you know, stationary, but detectable. When we applied the products, okay, we saw the opposite. We saw EC, the electric conductivity go down, which is a positive sign. We saw the plant making new sugars. We saw higher levels of phosphorus. Plants able to make 
insolubilize more phosphorus from the soil, and we saw aluminum levels lower and stay lower with iodine levels going up. So we're seeing these things all moving in the right direction. This is not a home run, okay? I'm not cheering. I'm not banging on my chest. What I'm saying is it's encouraging to us to know that, you know, these things are happening. We're allowing the plant to do what it can do naturally. And the end result is higher yields and higher profits for us. But but really deep down, it's better quality crop and overall health for all the rest of us. So um, sharing that with you, um, I I know that's that's a lot in a short amount of time, but um, you know those are all the things that we kind of work on day to day and year to year looking through this. So I appreciate um, you guys giving me time and all of you that are on the call taking a few minutes to kind of hear what's going on. So um, with that, I'm giving you the floor back, Jason, but uh, take questions and I guess open up for, for any dialogue. So. I know some people are having to go. Some people have tight schedules, but, um, but. Well, there's a lot of things that we can dive into here, Andy, and that was uh, uh, very informative and uh, terrific information. One of the things um, I think we want to touch base on with what Jeremy sent us a message about was the application mm-hmm. of the biologicals, uh, whether they should be separated and applied, you know, in that manner, or if they can be applied with uh, with other with within another pass like a herbicide, you know Perfect. what what will your yeah. your what's your experience with the biologicals and applying them those different manners? So, in a perfect world, you know, and I, and again, we're talking perfect world. If they could go separately, that's ideal. But in reality, we all know all of us in this room have you know worked a job or worked in the field at some point. Or another and that that isn't reality a lot of times so if you can't if it's got a ride in the same ride as an herbicide pass or if you know uh you know post-emerge pre-emergent the compensation is what provide it with a buffer and the buffer is energy and oxygen so you package it with some sugars um, and you reduce the amount of time that they're riding together so you're spraying you know quickly at night at night is key and with some sugars that that is helpful so um, why at night? I know someone asked that. Um, there's two reasons. Number one, temperature is lower Number and, and the stoma are open because of that. But number two is there's a pressure differential. So if you remember the Bernoulli's principle that we were talking about, if you can spray at night, you have dew on the leaves okay, and on the ground, you have a lower temperature and a different pressure. So what will happen is in the morning, it will be absorbed faster and easier versus trying to spray in the daytime where it wouldn't be absorbed and then it's sitting on the leaf and would evaporate some would evaporate off okay i don't like sitting in a pool at 80 or 90 degrees in the sun and biologically we notice that that they kind of are the same way so let's get on a, a point here of with the biologicals and, and, and putting them in with the herbicide, number one, will they be harmed by the herbicide? Number two, is there going to be a pH range um, in which you don't want your biologicals to get to, or does that not make a factor? And if that doesn't make a factor, um, by using something like cetane in your tank mm-hmm. just to bring that pH down to make those herbicides work better, will that also, in connection, make that biological work better and then being applied at the same time? 
That's a really good question. And I, I know George is itching to get on some of that, but quickly I'll say uh, that's one of the things that I've learned in doing this is that pH is much less of a factor than what it's made out to be. pH is just a measure of how willing that hydrogen ion is to move. Um, it's a measure of the energy. So George's product, for example, um, is a pH of one and is safe to the touch and safe to the plant. Well, how can that be? It's because it's it's just a measure of how likely that ion is to move and create create energy and momentum. It's not an acidity you know type portrayal like we think it to be. My product, the MicroBoost, the sugar, it has a pH of four and a half, which by definition you know puts that right in line with you know vinegars and you know some some diluted forms of sulfuric acid, and that can be very you know deceiving but in reality it, it's just to measure the energy so my my suggestion with people that are asking that type of question is where is the quality of water at you know uh are you using our water or using activated water because the the greater return for getting the product into the plant isn't adjusting the ph it's it's adjusting the quality of the water and the situation that it's in rather than trying to retroactively you know, adjust the pH and come up with those products. Um, on on the herbicide pass, you mentioned Jason. Um, they're pretty tolerant. The bugs are pretty tolerant, and they can take the ride. And it doesn't diminish the overall performance of the product as much as what we initially thought. So when we tank mix the stuff in an herbicide and let it sit for eight hours, I took account before and account after to see what the degradation was in an eight hour time. Um, and in that eight hour period, we lost about 10% of the count. So there is degradation. I'm not going to lie and say that it, it's resilient. It, I mean, you're in a chemical, you're in a chemical, but that degradation is minute compared to the overall depletion that is occurring right now, day to day in the soil. We're, we're pretty devoid of the pop populations and the specific forms that we need. So if we can get any of those back in, and encourage them with good feed, good oxygen, good practices, and clean water. That's far more uh, beneficial than just, you know, skipping it because we've got to make an herbicide pass. So, hope that helps. Now, what Sorry. I was going to allude to a minute ago, Andy, was that uh, everyone may not be totally familiar with it, but uh, is it not correct that most of the stomatas on a plant leaf are located on the bottom side of the leaf, the underside of the leaf. That's true. Yeah. And what you alluded to earlier, Andy, in the respiration cycle where the biologicals are consuming the sugars of which, um, again, uh, it, it's not evidently totally common knowledge, but the books uh, are pretty accurate in that in most cases, at least 50% of the photosynthetic sugar that a plant builds is going down to feed those workers in the soil. Because yes. how else would they be able to obtain the amount of food and energy they need to be able to respirate? And of course, they have to have oxygen to respirate that carbon, that food, that photosynthetic sugar. That's an addition to this the balance of the carbon and or organic matter or plant material or residue or whatever else that can ultimately be food sources in the soil for those biologicals. 
they still need that photosynthetic sugar. And that is where they're gaining that energy, which is the hydrogen ion. And that is helping to bring in the nutrients into the plant through the root system. So it's that draw of that hydrogen energy. And then the rest of the breakdown of the sugar is CO2 and water. Now, one of the experiments that Andy and I have been working on is that validating this respiration cycle and looking at the formation of the CO2. And Andy found uh, an interesting uh, paradigm in that the density of CO2 is heavier, of course, than oxygen or hydrogen. So the CO2 settles lower, which would then be more useful for the biologicals and the stomata as far as being able to take in more CO2 on the underside of that leaf with the density of the CO2 being heavier than oxygen or hydrogen, which are going to lift up and go back up and, of course, make more water. Yeah, yeah we have we talked about that, that, you know, we all growing up, you know, had this idea that air was like a a marble cake you know there was different components there was co2 there's nitrogen there's hydrogen gas it was just kind of all you know mixed together and you know in reality uh, when we looked at the density you know we did a reaction we did it in iowa um, and we could again i could send you the video but you know carbon dioxide actually you know is more dense than oxygen gas it's got a carbon molecule carbon um, attached to it so it it's heavier and it sinks. So, you know, our concentration of CO2, like you said, George, you know, is at its highest levels at its closest point to the surface of the earth. So the the further up we go, you know, the less carbon dioxide there is. So it makes sense that, you know, what George is saying is true and what, what we're seeing in some of these things, you know, behaves the way that it does because the levels there are different than what the levels would be you know, 50 feet up at the top of the canopy of a tree. Everybody checked out, George. (laughs) (laughs) Does anybody out there have any, uh, have any questions or have any comments or, or anything? Hey, it's Connor from Central Iowa here. I partnered up with Jeremy, and I just raised alfalfa. Uh, he gave me a mix to spray on my alfalfa this year, and I have never had to wait more than two, maybe three days for it to dry down. And this year, even on my fourth cutting, I had to wait four or five days because it was so thick that I couldn't bale it, I couldn't rake it because it was there's just too much out there. Um. My question to that is, and I've just kind of noticed feeding cattle, the bales that I have, do you notice or have you studied any on the digestibility after of treated alfalfa or treated uh, silage of some of this stuff? Is it more digestible? Um, it just seems that my cattle seem to eat that hay that was treated uh, more completely than what they had previously. That's a... That's a really good question, and I appreciate you bringing that up. But, you know, I think that's a good measure of, you know, 
for yourself too, you know, if if it's palatable to them, then, um, you know, I know that, you know, typically the animals don't lie. You know, I, I got a dog that'll, that'll behave, you know, differently if he wants a treat, but, you know, by and large, you know, animals pretty, pretty accurate in what they're telling us, um, you know, from that standpoint. But what I will say, Connor is, you know, I don't, I don't know specifically, um, from a digestibility standpoint, I have, I don't have an official study on that, but what I do know is we, we did test some alfalfa this year that was treated and we know that the sugar levels inside the leaves were higher. So I would, I, I know there's a palatability difference. I know they tend to gravitate towards, you know, the, the higher sugar content and we know that it was higher, but, uh, I'm not sure what, you know, from beyond that, I'm, I don't, I don't have any studies with the nutritionist to, to go further than that, but I'm glad to hear that you're seeing, you're seeing the things that you are with, with some of this stuff. So Connor, I can address it uh, on alfalfa that we've worked with the uh, growers in California now for over 10 years and where they had used uh, our products, the CarbonWorks products in conjunction with their fertility we actually, and their number of cuttings out there are just astronomical. I mean, eight, nine, ten cuttings. It's just unbelievable. It's a double what we get anywhere else. But uh, with that said, it's a whole different climate, growing conditions, everything else. But uh, the hay over the multiple cuttings, even in summer in the third and fourth cuttings, the grower was actually getting higher relative feed values and increased protein in the mid to high 50s in the middle of the summer. And that was not being replicated by any other growers there in Central California. And actually the hay grower who was actually brokering the hay called up and asked the grower, like, what are you doing different? No one else has got the protein levels you have in the middle of summer out here in California in this heat, triple digit heat. And he said, the only thing I'm doing different is he was using the CarbonWorks products in his agronomy program. And that being the dark carbon at planting and then spraying with the clear, our water conditioner, the replenish. So um, we've seen some very positives there in that aspect. Yeah, I would say, because I, I use some replenish, uh, the BioGreen Micro Boost, and some of uh, the foliar blend. And this was a piece, I kind of did a little, my own experiment. I, I took it out of CRP and went straight into an alfalfa. And I had spread manure on it for four or five years. And we had only sprayed this before second cutting, right after first, before second and just did that one time and it just seemed like it continued to work throughout the whole year. Um, kind of what Jeremy thought was maybe it, those microbes started to open up some of that manure that was, uh, trapped in the soil there from just sitting over time. And yeah, it just seemed like every cutting just maintained the, uh, quantity and the tonnage. Uh, we got some timely rains that definitely helped everything, but I was thoroughly impressed with what I saw. You know, I don't know if um, I see Kurt's on, and I know Kurt had some experience using uh, the the products on his his hay too. So I don't know if he has any feedback for that. But um, I, I know I know we scared some nutritionists this summer. You know, when those products were being applied, and they got some of the sap, you know, and the the tissue test back, and they they called and they said, 
uh, you know, they, they wanted, they wanted the growers to back off what they were feeding to their cow, you know, pull some of the rations back out because they said it was, it was too nutritious and too dense. And I'll be honest, I'd never heard that, that logic before. And I, I still don't fully understand it. You know, if you've got something that's, that's, um, more dense, you know, nutritionally, and it's got higher vitamin content, you would, you would think that'd be a, a net positive for, for the animal, but you know, you're right. I think it's just, it's, it's a different world, but, um, you know, really excited for you that, you know, you're seeing that. So. Andy, uh, Tim Brand from Missouri, uh, has a question about the timing of using the, the products, uh, the biologicals and, you know, infuro versus foliar. Um, yeah. Can you comment on that? Yes. Thank you. Um, so we, so, you bring up a really good point and uh the water is kind of important as we've seen with the growing test so my general feedback is you know we we like having some stuff in furrow um to get it directly in contact with the seed um early in the season if there's a sufficient amount of water so if you've got water if it's a if it's, if it's plants and conditions are good and it's a wet year the in furrow stuff putting it directly in the trench with the seed works really well if it's if it's drier, then I typically recommend using it as a foliar. And uh, because because all all the products that I make and all the things that are coming from Physigrill that I formulate are all manufactured with the activated water, so the absorption is a strength of ours. And so putting that on foliar, it can be absorbed uh, a lot more readily. And so we're seeing a pretty good response doing that early in the season, like V4, V5 time frame on corn and same with beans, you know, typically the time when people are making their post-emergent pass. So it's a good question. Really good question. And sugars, I encourage the, you know, that micro boost, the, the sugar product and the carbon products as often as you can, because the, the more times, especially the, you know, the, that combination, the, carbon and the microboost with the differentiated types of sugars you're you're reducing the amount of stress on the plant and you're providing the microbes in the plant with an additional source of sugar that it can use for all these other things so it, it's done a really nice job as far as mitigating the stress you know helping with drought stress helping with reducing the damage after people are spraying herbicides or getting drift from their neighbors so uh, can't speak enough about you know, that and, you know, as often as you can get that one in. So. Andy, can you see the, the questions in the chat? I'm trying to find it. I didn't see any coming. There we go. Got it. So there is another oh, one. Oh, here it is. Yeah. Good. Thanks, Jason. Um, activated water. Good. Okay. Good. Good question. So one of the questions is on activated water system. What do you recommend if you don't have it? That's a great question. And, um, you know, I will say, you know, I know that we we use the Personova system for the activated water on all of our stuff. But what I've found that's a great substitute if you don't have the system is to to use George's replenish. Um, that's going to add some energy and oxygen into the water as as a way to condition the water and make it more suitable for the biologicals. I like. I know. I know that these guys have had some different experiences. I personally like the replenish. That's what I've tested. Oh on all the, the biologicals and we saw a nice response. Um, George may 
suggest cetane depending on the usage, but um, but both of those do a really nice job of conditioning the water and making that a nice situation for you know for the sugars and the biologicals that we formulate and any other product for that matter to go in and be far more effective. Um, and then the growing conditions or the timing um, infero, and then as a foliar, I like it V four early in the season, and then. If you follow up, if you're if you're trying to get grain fill, and you're trying to get that last oomph of protein in um, right before tassel time in corn, right before the plant switches from its vegetative stage to a reproductive phase, whatever that looks like, you know, in corn and beans and pumpkins, it doesn't matter. But if you can hit it with nutrition as it's switching from vegetative to reproductive phase, all that nutrition goes into the seed or the fruit rather than the vegetative portion of the plant. So that's a really key time to hit with sugars, with amino acids, you know, with some carbon and energy to, to facilitate that, that seed fill and grow. George, when I was teaching and people got quiet, it meant either one of two things. Either it was really good or they're all asleep. And uh, I, I would just chalk it up as a W and make myself feel better and then move on. But I'm not it's, sure where we're at. It's, so it could be. It, it's really good. Okay. <laughs> it's really good. Good. Thank you. Thanks. Yep. Um, if, if a person, there are certain times that I have to go to city water. Mm-hmm. The city water is is a um RO water. Yeah. But but of course they be in the city water, they can't release it without having all of the yeah. added things to it. What yeah. what's the best um I've talked to George a little bit about that and then he and we were and I've been using replenish. Okay. And um what is there anything over and above that a person can or should try to do? To make that water more acceptable. Yeah. Um, Jared, that's a really good question. And that's something that we're seeing a lot of. And, um, you know, and I know that, you know, we can, with Personova, they can, you know, you can design a whole system, but that can be, you know, cumbersome and kind of a lot. But my, my general feedback is, you know, we, we know that RO water is clean, but it, it's not really recognizable to the plant and the body. Um, you know, it'll hydrate you to some extent, but your body has to work a lot harder to get that water Mm -hmm. into the cells. Um, so I think in that situation, the chlorine, um, the chlorine and the fluorides coming from the city are the the limiting factors there and something, you know, you might try just, um, you know, a carbon filter or a softener. Um, and, uh, you know, that may be enough to help reduce those levels enough to, make some progress, but that's what we, we did that in Iowa. Actually, we were having a problem with, you know, the city water and they were dumping, they didn't measure accurately and they were kind of dumping chlorine in. And so we, uh, we just filtered out, we put a couple, couple carbon block filters in front of that to catch as much of the chlorine as we could. And that, that made a, a substantial difference. So that's something I would think of, but replenish okay. is a good way. Yeah, but replenish is a good way after that to uh, after that. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's a good suggestion. Thank you. Thanks, Jerry. 
Uh, Tim, I saw your question uh, about the inferro program when you've got multiple things that you're going to go inferro with. And I think the the biggest parameter is to find the right balance of yeah. the nutrition, 624-6 or some other nutrient program uh, inferro with the, you know, the water, the best water you can get. And that would be you know, treated with, uh, you know, replenish in, in the case where you don't have the activated water system and or these sugars, uh, micro sugar products uh, like Andy has and others, uh, along with the either the RSTC-17 that, you know, you've used before or cetane in furrow. It's going to be the best that you can come up with for the value, okay, because we can throw everything in the kitchen sink in there at it, but it probably will never have a chance to have a positive ROI. It'll be overwhelmed. And so we know that when we look at multiple products in the mix and when we put the biologicals in there, much what Andy was alluding to that we learned in the dry, driest of dry years, we have to be careful about putting more eaters and drinkers in that situation at planting where there's only a very limited amount of water available. We're adding water, but five or six gallons an acre, we know that's not much water in contact with the actual seed. And it's not going to do a lot in a very dry soil to maintain that moisture. And we've got these extra workers we put in there and they're going to get thirsty. So we want to find the right balance of the products and what Andy was alluding to, I think in response to your question of putting in the biogreen in addition to these other things at planting, we we don't know. We can't determine and, and accurately, very accurately, and we can't yeah. change the weather. So we're going to have to go with what has worked on our farm as best we can and then try to supplement it if things change. If we wind up Having adequate soil moisture, go with the full program. You're going to get the highest ROI. You're going to get the best germination, and you're going to get the best emergence. More plants standing, you've got a chance to get better yield. There's still other weather events can happen, but we know that at that point, you're okay. But if we're in a dry situation going into like what it had been before this blizzard and snowstorm last week in Iowa, they were looking at very marginal uh, moisture in the soil for startup for 24. And with that said, they need to be careful about putting in more workers in that dry condition. You may exaggerate the problem. And so that's where I, we've always said it's a balance of take, trying to take all our best uh, information we have and uh, put it to work but then leave yourself open to some options, like Andy said, with coming back with the biologicals and some foliar nutrition uh, on a foliar program. And I think Jason needs to allude to that because I he what he did this past year in uh, Iowa and in, in Missouri in his case was is unprecedented of what Jason did. That's a good you you hit it. I you sum that up very nicely, George. Better than, better than I could. <laughs> I could have. So, I agree with everything you said. So, you know, if I can 
I can piggyback on that, one thing that, you know, comes to my mind when we hear all these things is you know, part of the goal in doing this is to try to try to reduce, you know, try to try to eliminate some things, you know, back off of some of the fertility and some of the, you know, the herbicides and things so that we don't have as much of the, you know, the other noise, you know, to compete with, you know, what we're trying to do to rehabilitate the plant and the soil. So, so I think you're right. It just kind of, where are we at? You know, what does that look like? So. Andy Daniel just had a question about do yep. we prefer and when we're putting the product in, Mm-hmm. Uh, do we prefer to have it on both sides of the seed uh, with like a wide drop applicator or a single side of the seed? Um, yeah. And you might expound on what Nate exposed last week about yeah. in his studies at AgRevival on the products and the placement of our product in relation to whether it's below or above the seed. That's right. You have, there were two things there I saw. Um, so you're you're right. Um, y stream both sides of the seed, or or direct on stream. And uh, what George kind of mentioned is that the Nate Nate Furley, who's an independent researcher that does a, a very nice job of um, thorough research, looked at this, and um, he did a study this summer where he put you know our products underneath the seed, and then a uh, a trial where he put it on top of the seed, and there was a very very large difference in response in putting it over the top of the seed um, as far as its performance. So it did much better over the top than what it did underneath. So um, I would say if you could do that, that would be the preference. Um, Y-Stream, I know a lot of people do. And uh, Y-Stream, if they're doing it that way, typically there's some other nutrition going with it. So the microbes have, you know, some things that they can work work on and, and are you know, there, there's something there besides the seed. So that, that kind of acts as a buffer and an energy source. Um, but we, it was very positive what we saw streaming it on top, on top of the seed this year in trial. So I would, I would encourage that, that if that's an option, that would be the best choice. And then, uh, real quick, I see a question on corn on corn. Do the microbes become more or less depleted? Um, from what I've seen, um, the more, a field is monocropped with the same thing over and over and over. The, the The population may be the same, but the diversity is what drops off, and that's where we're lacking. You know, the, the differentiation of crops and letting the land rest is really important to maintaining a diverse environment, and that's what we really need for some of these nutrient conversions to happen. So, yeah, on top of the seed, fabrication. That also brings up another point, Andy. One of the things that we've learned is that in these breakdown of uh, crop residue and, and as mentioned earlier, breakdown of manure, what's missing? It's yeah. the, actually the energy and oxygen. That That's becomes right. a limiting factor. And in some cases, and I, I know uh, our my partners north of the U.S.-Canadian border on the north side up there in the great... Uh, Western Canada, uh, they heard me say something they'd never heard before a couple of weeks ago on a Zoom call with some uh, prospects up there and said, that you can have too much carbon. We know you can have too much manure. You could have too yes. much water. You can have too much of anything. 
you got to find the right balance. And uh, Larry Ekoff and I had a great discussion last week in Iowa privately about that in, over lunch table that about finding the right balance. That's what we're after. Um, we don't need too much or too little of anything. We want to find the right balance. And that's what we're trying to do is replicate more of what Mother Nature does in a native untouched forest. That's what we would love to be able to replicate in our fields, but that's pretty hard to do, as we know. And for the last 78 years, 79 years now, almost, uh, we're man-made synthetic inputs have been such a large portion of our agronomy program since World War II. So these things have, we've got to find ways to offset some of the negative parameters of the synthetics by utilizing more natural things like much what Andy has with the biologicals that are more in harmony and the better water and better inputs will yield us a better crop. And then no matter what we're growing, so with that, though, the residue breakdown is that cycling process of the residual, the old plant material or whatever out there and or if added manure, it's got to be broken down. It's got to be converted. And that's going to take one thing for sure. We know oxygen and then moisture and then energy, because we know that if you put too much out there, the biologicals are going to try to eat it all. They don't don't understand uh, a diet. They just eat till it's all gone. And what happens if there's too much carbon, and this is why the carbon to nitrogen ratio exists that we hear people talk about here and there, but more like what Andy's done and, and Jason with the figuring out the right amount of energy needed for the amount of carbon or vice versa, needing more carbon in some cases like what I experienced down here in Florida where I've got beach sand that has no organic matter in essence. So we're kind of artificially adding it and carbon was a, you know, a miraculous thing for us to add to our soil. But you got to add the right kind of carbon. You got to add carbon that's biologically available. And then somehow you're going to have to have the proper amount of energy to balance that out so that the biologicals can perform and they're not spending all their time at the table just trying to eat up all that carbon. So Andy's biologicals are targeted in specific cases with the right biology for, of course, in this case, residual breakdown. And we're looking at where we have a manure product that we've had for 15 years that very well helps to break down the solids and to reduce the amount of ammonia and increase the nutrient availability of that manure, but also buffering those salts with carbon, but adding, again, energy and oxygen. I know it sounds like a broken record, but we're the only product out there that's got these levels of energy and oxygen in a pure carbon. That's what makes the our product so unique. But again, it's got to be in harmony with everything else in the program. We, we're not the one-all, do-all to everything to everyone. No, we're not. We are just another tool in the toolbox Andy has tools. You know, we all have tools. Our co-op has tools. The agronomy suppliers have tools. But we need to have a better look at what can get us the best result. And end of the day, we got to have more bushels or whatever we're harvesting. We got to put, you know, more almonds, you know, in the truck <laughs> or more grapes or whatever we're growing. And, uh, you know, this is the whole point. 
is that we're trying to have a better balance so that we end result, we've got something that has more value, certainly, but also addressing the importance of soil health. And that's why these programs like what Andy has developed are important for us to look at for a long-term sustainability. This is what we need to, and we have started addressing. I think everyone on this call is in tune with this. Uh, we just got to get the message out to a lot more people. And that's what we're trying to do. And that was the purpose of this call, a farmer sharing call, is to, again, uh, share knowledge. And I welcome questions or input if you can get on board with us or call us or let us know of topics that you'd like to hear something about, uh, please, and bring it up on the call. Uh, don't be shy. I mean, you know, we appreciate, we don't like, you know, want to be taken and hogging the mic. We're just here to help facilitate getting the message out there and sharing with you guys and, and uh, helping you in any way we can. With Have you, George or Andy, ever done any work with adding any calcium to any of the component as any of the components to experimentation there's different calcium products that are out there now that a lot of people are touting as um pretty special um is, is that something that anybody's ever um, worked with at all um <clears throat> not in field trials um, there, there are some, I did test, um, some calcium products as far as maintaining biological life. Um, because a lot right. of, yeah. Um, and there's, there's some, some evidence on that, that can help, but I, I haven't done anything specifically with, with how that works in the field. Um, you know, we know that calcium is important, but, um, you know, I, as far as, as far as the compatibility with, some of the things that I'm doing and George is doing, I, I haven't directly done anything with it. No. Yeah. Um, like you're saying, the ba the balance of things has to be right. correct. Mm -hmm. Well, and Jared, that uh, I, I can't speak to it, uh, but uh, Larry uh, Ekoff and the Agronomy RX group uh, are, are looking at some liquid carbons that are new to Iowa that they are going to be looking at this coming year. Um, but again, Jared, you're exactly right. It's about the balance. And, and unfortunately, one of the things that has been very problematic in our nutrient availability, and I don't care where your soils are, but I've lived this out personally here in Florida, watching Mosaic, one of the largest phosphate companies in the world, mine phosphate rock right here, adjacent to some of the farms that I have and work on, and that I'm having to buy phosphate fertilizer to put on the exact same ground that that drag line is digging out these uh, busloads of material and mosaics taking it to their processing plant and turning it into phosphate rock to sell us for fertilizer. And they wind up with the slag, which is a calcium mix with sulfuric acid because they're using sulfuric acid as the energy source to break apart the calcium phos bond. Well, that exact same thing is happening in our ground, Jared, unfortunately, and that's what we have identified is that the largest uh, detriment to our phosphate availability in the soil is too high of a calcium level. So this is- 
we yeah. need the calcium, but trying to figure out how we can make it available and yet not tie up our FOSS at the same time. It's going to be the battle of which is the most important, the P okay. or the calcium. I, you know, we know we need it all in the right level. And so I think that's our bigger question, but I can say over 15 years, Jared, that I've been in the Midwest now on corn and soybeans uh, this year since 2009, 2024 is 15 years on corn and soybeans, is that we proved with side-by-side replicated grid-sampled soil samples for multiple years in Minnesota showed that by using our products, and in this case, it was in furrow with water and, and other nutrients and or sugars, we were making more P and K available in that soil year to year to year. And uh, yeah. again, I think that's a function of, again, now what we know with Andy's biologicals and other biological products that are, are beneficial in that environment in, in furrow, what we're talking about, getting better seed germination, better biological activity. This is where we've refined to a better program today. And yet it's, we're still seeking for a, a more better performance, but at a greater ROI. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something, yeah. something else to, to think about and all that, you know, cause there were a lot of good points brought up. Um, you know, not, I don't know what your experience has been, George, but, you know, from what I've seen in the tests that have come, you know, my way the last couple of years, um, phosphorus, phosphorus and, and in particular, and um, some other nutrients have been more of a concern than the calcium. It, it seems like, you know, our soils, soil, yeah, we have it um, and it's there, you know, we just, you know, need to emphasize more of the conversion process that you know, the biologicals that are helping yeah. make that more available. So um, yeah, that's a good it's, point. Yeah. It's just interesting, you know, and I'm not sure whether that's right or wrong, but just from what I've seen, it seems like, you know, more of the issue has been trying to keep phosphorus levels and sulfur levels and things like that up. The calcium, calcium can be extracted from certain soil types if it's, you know, if it's got enough activity. So uh, sure. that's, a, that's a good question. I'd, I'd like to learn, you know, that'd be a good area to, to focus on maybe that's something we can tag team. So, yeah. But, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. See a question on um, following up a corn on corn. Um, it's a good question. The question is that diversity, you know, if, if you're corn on corn all the times, the biodiversity of the microbes going to drop or the microbes going to, uh, the ones that remain, are they going to be the ones supporting the corn or are all the microbes required to support the corn crop? That That's a, it's a good question, and I'm going to answer that. It, it, probably not PC, so we're still on the recording. So I'm I'm going to be nice, but uh, what happens with this? And actually, it feeds right into you know, Jared, what you were talking about earlier is that every crop, you know, when it has its process and it's photosynthating, and the sugars are working their way down to the roots, the root exudates look a little different crop to crop. So the exudates that are coming out, the different sugars, the different enzymes, that's different from corn to bean to pumpkin to raspberry to whatever, and that's going to attract different species. So what will happen is one it, one will become more dominant than the other. And so you'll have a high population of, of um, you know, microbes that are really in, intertwined with the corn crop. However, that's not necessarily a benefit 
to functionality because a lot of these nutrients, nitrogen being one, takes at least two species of microbes to convert it from nitrite, excuse me, from nitrate to nitrite to ammonia. So when you have some becoming more dominant than others, you lose out on those conversions. And so even though you have a bunch of microbes that are, you know, really entwined with the corn crop, the diversity is dropping. And so the reason, and I think this is kind of the root of the question, why do we see some of the crops performing as well as they are if we have very little biodiversity, right? And and I get that asked that a lot, you know, I have a crop that's doing fine. Why do I need to do this? And the root of the question is because we're keeping we're keeping the crop alive with synthetic inputs. You know, we're pumping it full of nitrogen and 1034O and fertilizer and, you know, all of this stuff. And it's it's a lot like having a crop on an IV. And once that nutrition is pulled, it can't sustain itself. The soil isn't able to function naturally on its own like it would want to, and the crop begins to fail. So I think that's kind of the root of that question. And uh, sorry if I went off on tangent, but, you know, we see that a lot. Diversity is depleted. And in a lot of these cases, you know, with heavy herbicide usage, the the general population is low too. So uh, there's that. Shut up. <laughs> so, I also think the same thing happens uh, whenever it's in um, other monocrops, so a bean on bean yeah. that I did for bean, several years yeah. and caused a lot of problems. Um, so, <laughs> it actually caused a lot of uh, nematode, cyst nematodes um, in the soil. But, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons why a lot of the biologicals are working so well for me is because I monocropped. So for so long that I'm introducing the diversity into this, into my program, and it, it's having a great response. A, a comment that I that I got years ago from, if everybody recognizes the name Jill Clapperton. Yeah. Um, I asked about, I was asking about Roundup. And and her comment to me was, Roundup's a good tool, but the thing producers and I'm still wrestling with how to how to get it performed is when you have a Roundup gene in a corn plant and a Roundup gene in a in a soybean plant, you have eliminated your diversity between your crop rotation because that that gene in both of those plants is put out the same into the soil and that so he said if 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 you're a producer you should hey if you're eating and you're going to use roundup use roundup on your corn and not your soybeans or vice versa so, but I'm still struggling to get to get off of that uh, yeah. addiction. Bryce, are you on still? Yes. Bryce, uh, that brings up the interesting point that I learned up there in Canada this summer with you guys on canola. Can you address that as far as why? Growers use Liberty on one crop and they use glyphosate on the other? Well, we like we have canola with both trades. So we use that 
to keep one out of the other, obviously, because you're your the crop you've planted is usually your dominant crop and your volunteer isn't quite as as good right but we don't have really two different crops with the same trait like corn and beans we're mainly focused on we have canola with both traits and like there's liberty link canola and roundup ready canola there's there's no dual well actually there's one dual trait out that you can spray either or on so that's going to be a, a turbo weed here coming if they overuse that product canola will be if you guys if you guys i'm just general question but have you guys seen issues this year that you hadn't before with with performance on that that it's not a you know is there any chemistries out there that aren't seeming to work like they used to because I've, I've heard mixed things about some of that from the field too so just curious on either jared you know bryce if you guys have seen some of that there's um in our area we're, we're getting into some water hemp that's that this- doesn't that yeah, you have to be careful with what, what you're using. Mm. And where ours is kosha. We have a kosha issue here, and that's kind of where the need for that dual trade canola came from because Roundup wasn't working, but Liberty was burning it down every once in a while. So I don't know. They say it came out of necessity, but we'll see how it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, I'm doing some experimenting, but I'm 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 starting to get the feel that that the replenish is is having a positive effect on some of the things that I'm using, as far as weed control goes. Oh, with okay, with every sense, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so. We've seen that too, Jared, with, um, you know, like you saw in the data when we put the replenish with, you know, even with the the Personova water and the activated water that we're using, we're seeing a nice, a nice response. So we feel like, feel like we're getting, you know, we're getting a, a prolonged effect with some of the biologicals and some of the sugars that way too, when we use it. Mm, yeah, that would be another addition that might help too. Yeah. Yeah, or for if if you're you're still doing the you know the the extract with the worms that could be a potential fit too. Just right. thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah, I I haven't I, I I'm still um, in the process <laughs> kind of thing, and it it uh, I'm going to have my extract built this this winter yet, and and I'm going to go go at it with a with the bigger guns this next year. Good. Watch out, Northwest Ohio. He's coming. So. So, yeah. Oh, Andy and and George, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Um, used your um, micro boost and chop this this fall and actually this this last spring, and had some wonderful results. And also in the mix was the uh, replenish product to treat the water. And I'm just questioning whether or not 
that would be better with cetane. And the reason I'm asking is, would the Carbon Works Replenish be a better product to use to treat the water for you know your pop-up or any foliar passes or or should it be replenished because i've seen some very positive results with the the micro boost and the and the chop and i and i've used that on my hand obviously andy we've used the, these products with uh curtis and uh yeah. john and i've uh, seen some very positive results but i'm not really questioning andy as much as about the product is which product of George's would be better in those applications, understanding that replenish is the one that you're to use if you're going to use it for chemical application only. So I'm a little, I'm questioning which, which product would work best um, in those applications. Well, Troy, the long-term data which we have is all based off of the dark carbon being the RSTC-17 or cetane. And we've always felt that there were some properties of the humic uh, being a more humic-based carbon uh, that is determined from subbituminous coal, uh, lignin, linardite, whatever you want to call it, peat bog up there in Canada, the great land of Canada. They got some great carbon up there. And uh, Others process it and do their thing, and then we take it, and then we enhance it. And that's our strength is how we enhance that carbon to add things to it. But the clear carbon, the replenish, the water conditioner, was specifically designed to be able to add a tremendous amount of energy and a tremendous amount of oxygen to spray materials, to treating the water, to make the water a better uh, penetrant to take those chemicals into the plant because we're trying to get that effect. And that's not just chemicals. It can be nutritionals. It could be a fungicide, herbicide, whatever. But uh, we get anything that is where you treat the water first, as we ask, treat the water before you add the chemicals or nutritionals into the tank. But the replenish is designed to really be a carrier for other things and where the RSTC-17 cetane has uh, parameters, uh, particulate matter in it that is what we think has uh, enhancement for the biologicals, whether they're native in your soil or ones that you're adding in a, bio in our, in a program, an inferno program. But I think the dark carbon is what we know we have data on. And that's what we pride ourselves on here at Carbomers is we have a lot of data for a long time, especially in row crops in the Midwest. And so that's where we have, you know, I can support it. I We know, and we're doing some preliminary research with Replenish within furrow programs, but that's all in its uh, infant stages. I mean, we only have one or two years of data on that from Iowa. So that I don't want to go up against 15 years of data that I can back up from the Midwest on inferro with the dark carbon. So I hope that clarifies it. Yeah, somewhat. I, I use the the replenish though in an inferro product this spring. I, I know I never told you, but and Andy's product in it and we used it and the corn and it drought. I mean, the, the the soil was so dry, I was surprised it even germinated, and it did. And we went back with the same program 
along with a, a sulfur product and a calcium product with and a Y drop application with uh, replenish and the, the bio green and the, the fuel and 32%, 30 gallons applied. And uh, the corn turned around, and Andy's seen it. It turned around in about two weeks from places out in the field where it looked like it was dead um, or between ankle and knee high. And in less than two weeks, it was um, shoulder high. And it, it was astonishing how fast it turned around. So I'm trying to figure out well, which one did the, the job or was it a, a combination of all of them? And, and was I using the right stuff? You know? Well, it's a great question. And, and I would uh, expound upon what I mentioned earlier with our group in Canada. Uh, we were talking uh, with a group that had extremely good uh, soil organic matter, five to six percent organic matter, but they have a very, very high CEC, 50 to 60 CEC, very tight soil, very heavy clays. And uh, that's where I made the statement that uh, they don't need any more carbon. They need energy and oxygen. They've got a biological situation that the biologicals are not working as best they could, and that we could enhance their bio biological activity by adding energy and oxygen and you know, other things. But again, we could enhance it with a full program of adding the right biologicals you know, to get in there and be able to work in that clay. But uh, that's where, Troy, in, in your case, potentially, and, and other cases in Minnesota and Iowa, where you have very good levels, I'd say at least a 3% organic matter or higher, uh, you probably got plenty of carbon. You just need more energy and oxygen. And that would have happened with the replenish. It would have delivered the energy and oxygen. So I think that's where we've got to look at each farm individually and see the parameters and look at everything instead of just looking at a soil report. Let's start thinking about the biologicals and about the water or lack thereof, you know, and soil moisture is important. Uh, temperature, everything's controlled by temperature too, the biologicals. That's why everything goes dormant up there. And it's sub-zero or sub-freezing, the biologicals don't want to work. And that's why we need a higher soil temperature to properly germinate corn seed. 55 degrees is the proper temp to soil temp to germinate corn seed most effectively. But we rarely see that in Minnesota and Canada and North Dakota and Iowa sometimes, Wisconsin. Uh, it takes a while to get that soil temp up above the 50 degrees and much less being 55. And that's why I think that we've had so many years of success in the Midwest with the products uh, added uh, in furrow was that we were increasing that biological activity, which Andy can speak to is that's increasing heat and that heat is helping to germinate that seed and get that initial root development going so that those coddling leaves can get to the surface and get to what? CO2 and sunlight energy so that the plant can start building sugar. You got to get the sugar factory going because the seed is a carbohydrate. And that we determine how deep we plant it by the size of the seed. You know, corn is typically going in at two inches, sometimes a little more. Soybean seeds at least 
an inch, an inch and a half, and we found that deeper is better on soybeans too. But if you had a two ounce piece of potato seed, you can plant that down a foot and that's where it needs to be planted and it'll make it because it's got that added fuel tank of all that extra energy, all that carbohydrate. So those biologicals have got more food. And that's what we've been about is the right balance of the carbon, food, energy, and oxygen. You supply the water, nature provides the, you know, atmospheric oxygen and nitrogen. And then we get this thing up and running. And once we get the plant above ground, then we are interested in how can we help that nutritional program and help that balance of the biologicals in the soil. Jason, uh, any added thoughts this evening after everything you've digested? No, I don't believe I do. I think uh, it's a good place to end at if, if, unless somebody else has, uh, has another question or something that went on this year they want to talk about or, or anything like that. I just want to say thank you to Jason and George and Andy for everything they've done to make this happen. It was really good. Thanks. Thanks, Jared. Yeah, Jared, you're very welcome. And uh, we uh, kind of getting this thing back rolling again this year for 24. I really want to thank Andy tonight. And I think this is some a lot of technical information. And if you want uh, any of that, uh, you know, we can make uh, Andy's contact information available, uh, email. Uh, yeah, cell number and uh, you can contact Andy for more information about uh, you know his uh, research and his products. Thank you both. Thank you guys for allowing me to do that. I appreciate the opportunity and and for everybody. I I enjoy this on a personal level too. Just being able to to hear everybody's thoughts. So it's encouraging for us, you know, for me to know that you know we can see the fruits of the labor, so to speak. That you know, we're not just spinning our wheels in the mud or in the snow or anything like that. So not one of those guys in the ditch this week. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, thank you to everybody for taking the time to get on board and share and uh, and leave and just listen. But uh, we uh, we appreciate you, appreciate each and one of you, every one of you getting on with us. And uh, we hope you got some value out and uh, we're going to continue to share. Thank you for tuning in to today's call presented to you by the Fellowship of Christlike Growers. We hope you can join us again soon.